0: Good to see all of you. Uh, normally, a, I have not done a candidating process before. I assume that most times when you do a candidating process, you don't know if you're entering hostile or friendly territory, <laughs> uh, depending on the church and depending on the temperature in the room. Uh, but for me, coming back, this just feels like coming home. So, I'm very glad to be here with you all. For, for those of you who don't know, my family and I, I uh, am still technically the PA, uh, the pastoral assistant of the chapel church. Um, but for the past few months, uh, you all have sent my family and I down to Portland, Oregon to be a part of Hinson Baptist Church, to be a part of their pastoral residency program, where I've been doing a ton of reading and writing on the church and the importance of the church. Um, in hopes that, Lord willing, I would come back better equipped to serve all of you. So, thank you for sending us down there to do that, uh, and for paying us to do that. It's been a privilege and an honor. Um, <clears throat> so, after the service, you will have time to ask me all sorts of questions, including how the residency's going, or what I'm learning. But to begin uh, my sermon, I want to pose a question to you. We are in John 9 this morning. You can open up your Bibles. John chapter 9. We're going to cover the whole chapter. And the the question that I want to pose. Is do you see correctly? And if you don't. How can you see correctly? Now I'm not talking about. Do you need glasses or not? Um, Kids are looking at their parents going. (laughs) You don't see right. Uh, But. Do you see things correctly? Do you understand things? Do you perceive correctly? If you haven't noticed, we live in a divided time. Uh, We live, Stephen mentioned, uh, we're in a new election cycle. We live in a day and age when, generally speaking, most people are separating into camps. And it's not just that people are separating into their various camps. But there's an increasing pressure to take a stance on current issues in our society and then barricade yourself into your camp with all of your personal opinions, stances, votes. These are, act like the bricks that you barricade yourself into your camp with. So we divide over views on the police, on government policies, on vaccinations, on political parties. You have the Fox News camp, you have the CNN camp, all these camps. In other words, there is a large conversation going on in our society about seeing correctly. There's a lot of people claiming, I see things the right way. Me and my camp, we see things the right way. And the same thing was going on in the time of Jesus. Except, uh, the debate over who sees correctly did not concern vaccines or news channels, but it concerned Jesus himself. So in John's gospel, up until our text today, which is John 9, uh, John records for his readers various signs and miracles that Jesus performed, all of which point towards Jesus' identity as the Messiah. In John's gospel, his goal, he tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, that is, and I'm just going to paraphrase it, it's basically, he wants you to see Jesus as the Messiah so that you would believe in him and have life in his name. His gospel is evangelistic in nature. So what he does in his gospel account is he's recounting all these things that Jesus did to prove that he's the Messiah. So he turns the water into wine. He heals various people. There's all these signs that prove him to be the long-awaited savior of Israel and of the world. And so this is all happening And many of those in Israel are seeing this go down. Some are believing that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe he's the real deal. But what you also see is a lot of people in Israel, especially the religious leaders like the Pharisees, they grew in opposition to Jesus. They claimed to see rightly, they claimed to have the right opinion about Jesus. They claimed Jesus was not the Messiah. And the question is, were they right? Did they see correctly? And if not, how could they get 2020 vision on Jesus? So, to go back to my question that I posed to you all, and I want to relate it now to Jesus do you see Jesus correctly today? And if not, how can you? And this is what our text today begins to answer it begins to answer this question do you see him correctly and how can you see him correctly and so this flows into my main point or my big idea for today it's only jesus only jesus gives spiritual sight but if you reject him you'll be blind forever once again only jesus gives spiritual sight but if you reject him you'll be blind forever And so we're going to explore this big idea throughout the duration of the sermon as we journey through John 9 in three parts. So this is just going to be our controlling idea, and we're going to travel through John 9 in three parts. So the first part, we're going to see Jesus' healing, and then we're going to look at the people's responses to Jesus' healing, and then in the third part, we're going to look at Jesus' explanation, and I'll let you know which part we're in. So we're going to look at Jesus' healing. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to talk about it. As he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while while it is day. Jesus has been proving himself to be the Messiah through various miracles and signs. And the Jews are growing in opposition towards Jesus. So right before we read the beginning of chapter 9, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus explicitly claims that he is the I Am, the great I Am. That he is Yahweh God. And those present attempt to stone him for this. And Jesus manages to escape. And that's where our text picks up. So Jesus is now walking along with his disciples and he sees a blind man. And note what John lets us know about this blind man. What does he say in verse 1? As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Like this guy is blind, blind. You don't get any blinder than blind from birth. He is blind, blind. John wants us to know this guy has never seen anything. This is his condition from the day he was born. He was born in darkness. And so it was common thought among Jews in Jesus' day that physical ailment was the result of sin. That's what we read. And so the disciples start asking Jesus about this, but he quickly dispels this notion and says something very interesting. Look at verse 3 again. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus claims this man is blind. Now, we could talk about God's sovereignty and suffering and subverting evil on its head. That would be a rabbit trail. Just think about that from this text. But Jesus, the focus here is that he says, some work of God, Something that only God can do is going to be done to this man. And as we keep reading, it becomes clear that Jesus is going to do this work of God. And he also attaches it to his identity claim about himself. He says, I am the light of the world. So there's a work of God, Jesus is going to do it, and he attaches it to the idea that he is the light of the world. And then we find out what the work of God is. It's opening up the blind man's eyes. It's giving the blind, blind dude sight. And you can see the imagery that John is painting for us, right? This man is in darkness. He's blind and he can do nothing about it. And then Jesus, as the light of the world, so we're picking up on this language, sight, blindness, darkness, light. Jesus is the light of the world, brings light to this man by doing only what God can do and opening up his eyes. And so as we read this, all of this flows right back into what I said John is trying to get us to see. He's trying to get us to see something about Jesus. All of this flows back into, it speaks to Jesus' identity, it speaks to Jesus's work, And it speaks to human need. So when Jesus says he's the light of the world. And he's healing a blind man. All of this harkens back to something in the Old Testament. All of this harkens back to a lot of what Isaiah talks about. Blindness imagery is frequently employed by Isaiah to refer to Israel's spiritual failure. Their refusal to trust God. And then it also refers to God's judgment on his rebellious people, making them spiritually blind, hardening them in their own defiant resolve to rebel against him and not trust him. So God talks about his people, Israel, as if they're blind. They're blind. And yet, in the midst of Israel's blindness and rebellion, Isaiah foretells a day when God's servant, so he, he, he mentions God's servant a lot in his book, and he talks about God's servant, which is talking about the Messiah, the Savior, that one day God's servant would come to save and heal God's people, restoring their sight, bringing them light and life. So listen to this from Isaiah 42. This is God speaking to the servant, speaking to the, the Messiah. It says this, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you, the servant, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Do you see the connection? Jesus, when he shows up on the scene healing a blind man, a blind, blind man, a guy who's born blind, who's stuck in darkness, and Jesus says, Oh, by the way, I'm the light of the world, and I just healed this dude. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus, in claiming to be the light of the world and healing this guy, shows that he is this life-giving, light-shining, eye-opening Savior. And as we find out, as we keep reading through this story, this healing of the blind man points to the bigger healing work, which all humans need, and which only Jesus can bring. As humans, the Bible clearly states that we are utterly dead. We are dead in and buried beneath the weight of our guilt and our own sin and folly. We are separated from and at enmity with God. Or in the imagery that John uses, we are blind from birth. We are lost in darkness and we are without light. We are spiritually blind. And we cannot of our own accord even recognize who the light of the world is. We cannot even see him as the true saving light, the one to bring us spiritual sight. That is, unless God enters into our darkness and opens up our eyes. So here's the reality. It is only through a work of grace by God himself that we as humans, in our deep need, can be rescued out of the darkness and have our eyes open to the glorious reality of Jesus as Savior and Lord. And this work of grace, this intervention of God, is represented by what this healing of the blind man points to. The ultimate spiritual rescue, the ultimate opening of the eyes, the ultimate light that shines forth, the ultimate life-giving moment of God to sinful, rebellious, dead humans takes place through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross is the moment when Jesus takes the darkness of our sin on himself that he might offer forgiveness of sins to all who trust and believe in him, giving us life and light. Brothers and sisters, this reality, what Jesus does here to this man, should deeply humble us it should deeply humble us as believers like if you're here here today and you profess to be a christian that work is nothing of your own doing absolutely nothing of your doing you were blind from birth blind blind and the son of god stepped in and he saved you and he opened up your eyes The fact that you are even here today. The fact that you were just singing to Jesus a few moments ago. The fact that you run with God's people is an utter act and testimony of God's grace. I mean, just so some of you are in the back, so you can see all the people up here. But all of you who are up here cannot see people behind you. Just take a second and literally take a second and look around you. Like, the people sit, the, sitting around you, whether you like the people you're sitting next to or not, most of the people in this room are living, walking, breathing, speaking testimonies of God's grace. God's grace has it filled this room when you walked in. And when you sat down. Hundreds of testimonies, hundreds, a hundred testimonies of God's grace filled this room when you guys came in. It would take hours, it would take days to recount every story of how each of you could attest to the fact that you were blind but now you see. And so, as we come out of the gate looking at this blind man who was healed by Jesus, it speaks to this greater reality of Jesus' Jesus's identity, his work, and our need that he meets. And it should deeply humble us. And so I hope my, my hope and my, exhort, my encouragement is that we need to let what happened with the blind man here, and we need to let the testimonies that surround us in this room remind us today of the very nature of our salvation. That it is nothing of our undoing, and it is holy of God. And it should also then point us to the security of the salvation that God has granted to us. It was His to give. He chose to get the blind, blind man that is sitting in the seat next to you up off of the ground and open his or her eyes. It was His to give, it was not yours to earn. And that never changes. And let this also work in you today, awe and adoration, as we together continue to look upon the breathtaking greatness of God and his amazing grace to us. That we were blind and he decided to give you. You. He decided to give you spiritual sight. It speaks to his commitment of love, his commitment of salvation to us. So we see right away, Jesus is the light of the world, and seeing spiritually can only happen through the miracle of his grace to open the blind eyes of sinners. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? Yes? Good. Okay. We're going to move on to the second section now. So we look at Jesus' healing, and now we're going to look at the people's reaction, and this is a long section. I am giving you fair warning. We are going to read 30 verses. So Jesus heals the blind man, and then John records for us a series of interviews. It's like um it's like one of those murder mystery movies where there's a lot of interviews, except here there's multiple interviews and multiple people are playing the role of cop, like the policeman interviewing the person and then the person responding. There's just multiple scenes, there's four interviews that happen between various characters in the story. And then the blind man or people that are associated, associated with the blind man. And John's recording this for multiple reasons. So it's a long section. I'm going to read through all of it. And then we're going to look at two things. Two big takes to notice from this. So I'm starting in verse 8. Feel free to follow along. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. So this, is, this is the blind man. The neighbors and those who had seen him before, as a beggar, were saying, It is not the man, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is who is a sinner do such signs and there was division among them so they said again to the blind man what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes he said he is a prophet the jews did not believe that he had been that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who was born blind who had received his sight and they asked him is this your son who you say was born blind How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe him? Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believed. And he worshipped him. Four interviews. Lots going on. Lots that we're not going to talk about. But there are two things that we're going to talk about. Two big things to notice. The first is, In each interview, there is a question about the blind man's healing and an answer as to how he was healed. So, for example, in verses 8 through 12, we had the blind man's neighbors. These are probably the people that just walked by this guy every day. They knew him. He was Joe, who sits on the side of the street begging because he's blind. They all knew Joe. And they start asking him, Well, how did this happen? Is this really him? How could, well, if it is really him, how could this, how could this be? And eventually, what they realize is that the blind man was actually healed. He was healed. So they start asking, well, where's Jesus? Like, we want to meet Jesus. And the blind man says, I don't know. I was blind, dude. Like, what do you want me to do? I didn't see where he went. Then the blind man's parents confirm later. The Pharisees start getting involved and start asking a little more, they start being a little more contentious. And so they call the blind man's parents. They really want to know, was this legit or not? And then the blind man's parents confirm it. He really was blind. Go ask him. Like, he's old enough, he can speak for himself. And then even the Pharisees in the end acknowledge that the man was born, that the man born blind was really healed. If you look in verse 34, when they tell him, you were born in utter sin? Remember the disciples' first question when they asked Jesus, who, who sinned that this man was born blind? This is what they're referring to. They're acknowledging, yeah, yeah, you, you were born, born blind. So they even have to own up to the fact that this guy who was born blind was legitimately healed. My point is, John wants us to see that it's not just this man who claimed to be healed but it's also those closest to him who affirm it. And then this points to the fact that Jesus doesn't just call himself the light of the world. Like any, I could stand up here and call myself the light of the world. But Jesus doesn't just call himself the light of the world. He actually is the light of the world. And it's proven by the fact that all these people who know this blind man are attesting to the fact that Jesus really did heal this guy. Jesus is the real deal. He really is the light of the world. And John is concerned that you and me as his readers would be convinced of this. Jesus can really do what only God can do. He really can open the eyes of sinful humans. Both physically and spiritually. John wants us to be utterly convinced of this. And so the question for us today as believers is, are we? Are we convinced that Jesus really is the light of the world and all that entails? Are we confident that he is the only one who can open the eyes of the blind? I find often that, my, and I'll explain these two terms, but my confessional theology and my functional theology are sometimes very different. Confessional theology is what we would, most of us in this room, would say that's true. Like what we just talked about. Jesus is the light of the world. Well, that's what the Bible says, so I confess that. Or it would be, we would, as Christians, we would confess that the doctrine of the Trinity is a real doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. Or that Jesus That justification by faith is a biblical doctrine. These are things that we confess. We just confessed doctrines, actually, when we were singing today. We confessed a lot of doctrines while we were singing. I am up here confessing doctrines to all of you this morning. That is our confessional theology. But then there's our functional theology. This is the theology that we live out of. And sometimes the two don't align. Sometimes I am often quick to confess Orthodox Christian truths with my mouth, but then I might not functionally translate that in my day to day life. So, for example, we're confessing this morning that Jesus is the light of the world, He is the only one who can open the eyes of the blind. Would you agree? Amen? Yes? Yes? Okay, one person agrees. Great. Um, thank you. You and me. Uh, one person agrees. Great. So, there's our con- we're confessing this truth this morning. Jesus is the light of the world. It's election day on Tuesday. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to ask is, does our confessional theology that Jesus is the light of the world And that he's the only one who can open the eyes of the blind have bearing on that. Would it affect our functional theology on how we actually think through election day? In our current cultural landscape, um, I think a lot of Christians are worried about where we see America headed. Though we don't face nearly the same amount of persecution as some believers do in other countries... It's becoming increasingly harder to be a Christian in America. If you state certain views on marriage, you'll be attacked. If you state certain things are sin, you might come under um, verbal abuse. It's becoming increasingly harder to be a Christian in America. And then I think the gut reaction of a lot of Christians right now is that we need to do things like make sure we get the right people that might promote good moral values into office so they can pass the right policies and then that will bring change to America and make it a Christian country. And yet, if we believe, if we're confessing this morning that Jesus is the light of the world, that he is the only one Who can open up the eyes of the spiritually blind. That salvation cannot take place. Apart from God's gracious intervention. Into human lives. Then why would we ever. Put our hope. In policies and politicians. Why would we ever put our hope. In policies and politicians. To do what only God can do. Do you see how our confessional and our functional theology can be very different? I am not saying this morning, do not vote. Vote or no vote. That is not what we're talking about. I'm just saying, do not put your hope in your vote. Place your hope as a believer. We need to place our hope in Jesus Christ. And then we need to let that hope that we have in him and who he claims to be dictate our priorities and the way that we live even on election day we should let that drive us to ask him to be gracious and to sovereignly intervene in the lives of our neighbors our coworkers, our friends our family and open their eyes okay let's say it's not election day maybe parents how many of you are parents i'm a parent yeah lots of parents in this room As Christians, we are responsible for our children, to raise them, to teach them God's ways. I think one of the struggles that I face, I have three three children, five, three, and one. Um, you can pray for my wife. She is a trooper uh, and an amazing woman. So, something that I think through with, with my own children is the fact that you know, I I want to teach them good morals. I want to teach them the way of the Lord. But I also don't want that to somehow become a substitute for the fact that they actually need to have their eyes opened by Jesus. You could be an extremely moral person and be lost in utter darkness and blind. Parents, are we hitting our kids over the head with morals? But then not praying that Jesus would open their eyes? Is our confessional and our functional theology different? Or maybe it's evangelism. Maybe you're sharing the gospel with somebody at work this week. And you see utter resistance to the gospel. And you wonder, man, like, I I know Jesus wants me to share my faith. I know he wants me to share the gospel. But, like, this person is just so utterly resistant to the message of the gospel. The problem, like, I, I must just be doing this wrong. I'm like the worst evangelist in the world. Now, we, we can grow in our evangelism. But again, what would our confessional theology teach us about how then we functionally live? If Jesus is the only one who can open the eyes of the blind, doesn't that just make us messengers? Doesn't that force us to prayer more as we talk to people to also be on our knees? Asking him to do the work that we cannot do? John, as we read through these interviews, wants us to take the thesis statement, Jesus is the light of the world, and see that it's legit, and we need to be convinced of it. So I said there was two things through these interviews. We just did the first one. The second one is that in every interview, we see that either the Pharisees or the blind man make identity statements about Jesus. They, they're, they're growing throughout the story and how they see him. But the thing is, is that they're growing in opposite directions. They're seeing Jesus differently. They're making two different camps, barricading themselves in with their bricks. The blind man becomes increasingly convinced through the story that Jesus is the Messiah. That he's the son of God. And eventually he believes. His eyes are not just opened physically, but they're opened spiritually. So look at verse 11. First he calls, what does he say about his identity statement about Jesus? He says, the man called Jesus. I don't know, the, the guy, Jesus. That's his, that's his conception of Jesus. Now in verse 17, second interview. He's a prophet. And then later, when he's talking to the Pharisees in the fourth interview, if this man were not from God, this is verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And then in verse 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped. But then, if we follow the Pharisees, in verse 16, did you notice they start off divided? well, he did open the eyes of a blind man born from birth, a blind, blind man. So that has to mean something. But then other Pharisees were saying, but he did it on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do anything like that on the Sabbath. But then as the story continues, their eyes become, they, they, they shut their eyes and they just hold them tighter and tighter together. How are we supposed to understand this? This is something that's happening through these interviews. How are we supposed to understand this? Jesus tells us in the last section of our chapter. So we're going to move to the last section. And it's three verses. Four verses. Three. I can count. Um, It says this. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Verse forty. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Just like the sun, when it's a sunny day, it happens rarely in the Pacific Northwest, but when it is sunny, it illuminates things, right? You can see clearly. I can see clearly now, the rain is gone. Yep, that's what happens. The rain is gone. I can see clearly now. But the sun can also blind you, can it? I have to tell my kids this. Do not stare at the sun. It will blind you. <laughs> Don't stare at what, Dad? Don't stare at the sun. It will blind you. It illuminates, but it also blinds. Jesus has come. This is, this is what he says. He has come to give spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind and cannot see. But this also means that those who think they can see, like the Pharisees, will be blinded by his light. See, the Pharisees are convinced that they see things correctly. We've got 20-20 vision on this Jesus guy. We know what's up. We see clearly. They are spiritually self-sufficient. Their religious traditions make them good. We're disciples of Moses, they said. We got this all under control. Our religious traditions make us good. They refuse to see Jesus as the Messiah. They refuse to see their need for Jesus to open up their eyes. And so according to Jesus, they prove that they, not the blind man, but they are the real blind ones. They're the ones who are stuck in darkness. It shows the state that they remain in for rejecting Jesus. The Pharisees, for rejecting Jesus, they remain in in a state of darkness, death, and judgment. That's the imagery that John uses throughout his book. Light equals life, darkness equals death, judgment. And maybe you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian. And maybe you've been listening to everything that I've been saying about Jesus and you're internally kicking against the notion that Jesus is the only way to be saved. That he is the only one who can open up our eyes and give us the real lowdown on how it is. Maybe you think that he doesn't have what it takes to meet your need. Maybe you don't even think you have a need. And I would just ask you, if you're here today and you don't claim to be a Christian, and you're kicking against this, I would just ask, why is that? For the Pharisees, it was because of their religious upbringing. It's because they didn't think they had a need. Maybe for you, it's your personal pride. Maybe it's your religious upbringing. Maybe it's your unwillingness to admit your own need. Whatever it is, if that's you, I want to, and I think that this text wants to, God's Word, I want to kindly but also pointedly say that Jesus is the only way to be saved. It's very clear from this text. And that if you reject Him, you'd never turn to trust in Him, you will remain blind forever, under condemnation and God's wrath, for your sin. That's where this text leaves us. The Pharisees are stuck in their guilt, the sin of unbelief. Now we do have to question, for, for the readers of John's gospel then, remember John's goal is to get us to see Jesus we would see him as the son of God, as the Messiah, and believe in him and have life in his name. And so for the readers of his gospel, what's been happening all the way from chapter 5 all the way up till now, and it's going to keep happening through John's gospel, is this utter rejection of Jesus by his own people. And some might be prone to ask, well, if Jesus' own people are rejecting him, like the people that have been waiting for him for hundreds of years, how can we know that Jesus is really legit? But what we see here actually functions to further encourage John's readers, us. That the rejection of Jesus by some, even by his own people, does not speak to his validity as the real deal savior in light of the world. Rather, it actually confirms it. Like this is what the light does. It divides. If COVID taught us anything, and yes, it taught us a lot. If COVID taught us anything, it taught us that the value of certain items on the market fluctuate with public opinion. Um, so, I have a friend. He used to work for Pokemon. Does anybody know what Pokemon is? Yes, I'm talking about Pokemon in a sermon. Yes. Okay. Pokemon is, is like a, it's a Japanese cartoon. It's these little monsters that you catch with... Never mind. It's, you don't need to know what Pokemon is. What you need to know is that po- Pokemon, if I'm even pronouncing it correctly, has trading cards. These are like baseball cards. And during COVID, the public opinion about Pokemon cards, in my understanding, rose to such the degree that my friend who worked for Pokemon, there are actually Pokemon card machines that are at stores. And he would go around to these stores and stock the machines. And he would have people follow him because these card machines would run out so fast. And then people would go sell them on eBay for exorbitant amounts of money. That people would literally follow him, he would stock the machine, and then they'd buy all the cards and go resell them. The value of their pieces of paper with drawings on them that, like, my five year old could do. <laughs> Public opinion is dictating their value and their worth. Is public opinion the metric by which we measure how valuable and valid Jesus is? Is it the metric by which we measure Jesus' value and his validity as the light of the world? And what John would say to us is a resounding no. And what this points to then is that if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, though the whole world reject him, Though you be excommunicated from your friend group, though people revile you and speak against you because you follow Jesus, though you face death for Him because of Him, it doesn't change who Jesus is, that He is the real deal. He is the light of the world, He is the only Savior. So, to come back to my first question I asked at the beginning of the sermon do you see Jesus correctly? And if not, how can you? To see Jesus correctly is to see that he is the light of the world. He is the only one who can save. And the way that you can see him correctly is because God has graciously moved in human history, entered into our darkness to bring us light, to open our eyes, to give us life in him. And yet if you reject that, you'll continue to be blind In darkness and in death forever. In other words, what I stated in my big idea, only Jesus gives spiritual sight, but if you reject him, you'll be blind forever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for entering into our darkness for taking our sin and shame on yourself. That if we believe in you, we might have life. We thank you for being the light of the world. We ask that it would deeply affect our lives today. We pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.